From the tower of power, too sweet to be sour, I'm funky like a monkey, sky's the limit and space is the place. Welcome to a Podcalypse Now, a journey into the heart of darkness. My name is Dave and this is my brother Aaron, and we're here to give you our totally 100% unqualified views on all things pop culture. From movies to music to news, nothing is off limits for us to blindly comment on that's happening in the real world. This week on Apocalypse Now, we're going to be talking about Clash of the Titans, Fallout from the San Diego Comic Book Convention, and Aaron's homework assignment, Mad Men Season 1, Episodes 1 through 6. So to start off the episode, we're going to talk about the homework assignment that I gave Dave this week, which was to go and watch the remake of Clash of the Titans. Basically, it's about a young demigod who was fathered by Zeus named Perseus. And in this version of the movie, Sam Worthington is the actor that plays Perseus. Basically, Perseus has to figure out a way to save the city that he uh, becomes a part of. It's not where he initially is from, but he gets drugged into it because Hades and Zeus obviously have a long embattled relationship. And so... So that carries over into the potential destruction of the city. So Perseus goes on a quest to be able to prevent the destruction of the city. As a lot of you know from Clash of the Titans, the original, it's a well-known movie. And the idea... Just like Black Christmas. Just like Black Christmas. The really interesting thing about this movie is it's coming on the heels of the 3D craze. They added the 3D to it in post-production, and it also starred the what is shaping up to be today's poster boy for action movies, which is Sam Worthington. When I went to go see it, it was at a cheap theater, and I didn't know what to expect. I was actually planning on going to see the uh, movie that looked equally as good, Robin Hood, but I missed that showtime, so my girlfriend and I just went to see this. It's a pretty silly movie compared to the original. I mean, the original has a, a loyal cult following because of the special effects and this movie it's, it's just kind of silly the characters are poorly developed the only character you can really remember is Perseus and that's simply because he's the main character there are some cool special effects you gotta give it that but the story it is just basically what happens in the original it's got a Zeus character who's naive beyond all believability wait, wait, wait a second are you saying it when his brother Hades comes up from the depths of the underworld and has a plan to save him that Zeus shouldn't just believe him. I think that if you've betrayed someone so badly that he gets stuck in the underworld, that is a pretty good reason to think he doesn't have your best intentions in mind when he happens to pop up to save well, your ass maybe when you're Hades is willing to forgive Zeus when Zeus fucked him so badly and stuck him in the underworld. <laughs> Look, you know, or maybe Zeus was spending too much time polishing the beautiful sheen on his armor. They do give him really nice armor in this movie. Yeah, I gotta jump in here. I'm a couple years older than Aaron, so I remember this movie. It was one of the first things I saw on TV, the original Clash of the Titans. It featured stop-motion animation work and character designs by Ray Harryhausen. And if you know anything about movies, Ray Harryhausen is a legend that looms large over the last 70 years of Hollywood. I mean, for God's sake, the man was taught stop-motion animation by the guy that did King Kong, Willis O'Brien, the original 1933 King Kong. The new version of Clash of the Titans, it's terrible. And the biggest crime of it all is that it's not even worth watching and having a good time and laughing at it. It's dull. It's boring. And there's nothing you can even say that's really that funny about it. And that's probably has a lot to do with why they threw in the uh, post-production 3D. It, they probably were trying to cover up for the, uh, the lack of quality. Unlike Dave... I at least found some things that were funny in a it's so bad it's laughable way. You want to talk about a movie that's so bad you can like have a good time and enjoy it is 2012. That came out last year with uh, John Cusick, directed by Roland Emmerich, the same guy that's destroyed the world like half a dozen times. 2012, if you sit down and you turn your brain off and you enjoy it on that stupid, funny, dumb, disaster movie level, 
it delivers, especially if you can go to see it at a $3 theater or rent it. It's, it's so great. It's an interesting night. It's a, it's a laugh riot. But this movie didn't have any of this. This movie was such a studio corporate action film that literally, if you check your watch, every 15 minutes there's an action beat. Something else is happening. Something's flying around. Yeah, I did think some of the action scenes were kind of neat. Like, there's a scene where they're in the desert, and they're chasing after a bad guy, and these scorpions are popping out of the ground. And some of the CG for that stuff was kind of impressive. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The Medusa scene, I thought, was really cool. I think they did a good job with that in terms of the pursuit Yeah, I was really affected emotionally when his buddy, the older soldier that had been mentoring him, whose name I can't remember because, honestly, I don't think they gave him a name, <laughs> stock character number one was turned to stone by Medusa come on even the comic relief the two dirty guys that joined their band when they left I believe the city's thieves as far as I'm concerned it's nameless city on the edge of the ocean you know the two comic relief guys they didn't even get a moment for comic relief because and you could tell they're comic relief because there's the kind of tall thin one and then there's the fat homely one and they didn't even get their moment to like for laughs slightly was, cowardly <laughs> slightly cowardly just bland I mean you could have plugged Jack Black in that role and he wouldn't be able to do anything with it. I feel like there's a lot left on the editing room floor. Like, hopefully somebody had shot some more kind of character development moments. I doubt it. It just feels like it is what it was meant to be. I think it's one of those things where a studio made a product and they were hoping that it would make money based on the history of the original and the fact that it's a summertime, quote, blockbuster, and people like those big summer dumb blockbuster movies. This movie was kind of a failure. It didn't make that much money, did it? I don't have the numbers off the top of my head. The funny thing about the summer blockbuster season is that it keeps getting pushed back earlier and earlier. This movie, I think, was released at the end of April. It feels to me like it's almost like the time where it's like, we'll throw this out there right before the real big films hit, and maybe people will be ready to see some kind of spectacle, some kind of really bland, dumb spectacle. And I'm kind of puzzled why they remade this movie, because I have fond memories of Clash of the Titans. But when you talk to people our well, that's age... That's why they made it, is because people have fond memories of it. Yeah, but wouldn't you think, like, if you want to have a cash grab, why don't you remake Goonies? Why are you going to remake Clash of the Titans? Like, I have fond memories of it. Mostly it's just because I watched it when I was a kid. I've tried to watch it recently. Harry Hamlin's performance doesn't hold up. What the thinking probably was for the studio is, okay, look at this movie, which at its time was revolutionary in regards to the special effects. I, it, it really wasn't that revolutionary, I'd say. It well, was... I mean, but that's what it's known for, okay? Maybe it wasn't revolutionary, but it was known for its stop animation. When you think of the original Clash of Titans, you think of all that the, the stop animation that was throughout it. That's what carried that movie. And so what they thought was, let's take that and let's update the special effects on it using all this technology we have in our hands. And people are going to come see it and they're going to be like, oh, it was cool back then. They, you know, they used the state-of-the-art special effects back then. And now we're doing it now. And it'll just that will tie the two in together and hopefully it'll carry over. But the problem is that the story was weak. Sam Worthington, you know, another average performance. I mean, it, it, was, but, it I mean, wasn't a good Sam, role. Sam Worthington has given a performance in any film. In every film, he plays the same stock character. He has that same gruff, grumbling voice. Devoid of De a lot of emotion. The man brings no personality to any character he plays. And I don't get why he was anointed a few months ago as the chosen one that was plucked from nothingness and stuck into Terminator Salvation and Avatar. It's kind of coincidental how he got into all these big summer blockbusters. Well, Avatar came out during the wintertime, but big blockbuster movies all at once because they happen to be so close together. There's no way any momentum he would have built in regards to his own career would have allowed him to get these roles so it's like all of a sudden Hollywood got together and said this is the next big guy in regards to Terminator Salvation Sam Worthington had created some buzz for himself due to whatever performance people thought they were seeing in that film and that's how he got the role in Avatar that's how he got cast because a lot of people were saying he was the next big thing 
And I also think the fact that he was young and up and coming and they could get him cheaper than somebody else. I can't think of any Gerard Butler. He probably came cheaper than Gerard Butler. So that's probably why they stuck him in Avatar. I mean, let's be honest, the budget on that thing was ungodly. You know, they were looking to cut costs any way they could. But he's been in two big films and one of them, Terminator Salvation, actually forced the production company into bankruptcy. And that's the Terminator franchise. And that's not exactly on Sam Worthington. No, I think that it was Christian Bale's movie. Retarded. That's well, the word yeah, you're that's looking it. for. It was, it was one of the worst movies I've, got, I've, I've ever seen. I've got other words I can say. <laughs> Douche-tacular. <laughs> In the words of Mel Gibson, it sashayed its way through last summer, but it managed to impress absolutely no one. The only cool part of that whole movie was um, the CG Terminator, Arnold. That was one part where I was like, that's kind of cool. It only lasts for two seconds. It only lasts the novelty for two wears seconds. off when you realize how bad the movie you're watching is. A three-minute sequence in a movie, and then they blow the Terminator skin off, so it's just the endoskeleton, does not make for a great film. But we're, we've kind of digressed away from Clash of the Titans. We need to get back on subject here. Okay, Dave, so what would be your grade for Clash of the Titans? My grade for Clash of the Titans is probably a D. It's not an absolute failure. It's not totally unwatchable and totally wretched, but I would never, ever watch this film again, and if I hadn't been assigned it, I would not have gone to the $3 theater. I took my girlfriend, I want my $6 back. That's what I think about this film. Aaron touched on it earlier. It's a pretty blatant cash grab by Hollywood right before summer began. So like I said, D, strong D. I give it a no pass because I think the writers and the people who made it obviously were skipping movie making class when they should have been paying attention. So, well, it's because they were at accounting class, yeah, <laughs> counting their piles of money that they're going to take home. I mean, it's, there's no craft in it. There's no character development. Outside the characters of Perseus and Andromeda and the multiple Greek gods, I can't name another character in that film. No, and, and like you touched on earlier, it's like there's these characters like in the Medusa scene where basically the entire party he spent the whole movie with, and you're supposed to, as, as a member of the audience, care for these people as they're getting picked off one by one by Medusa, and Perseus is left alone. You don't care. Like, you can't remember these guys' names, but he's had a relationship with them the whole movie, but they're so poorly developed that it's kind of lost on you. And I mean, that's just weak writing, you know? Well, it I mean, it's, it's just it, not a good movie. It becomes like a Band of Brothers type film. You know, and if you're going to think about that, you go back to the TV series Band of Brothers or a better example is Saving Private Ryan. And as these characters die during Saving Private Ryan, it affects you because you, you've invested in these characters. And granted, they weren't making Saving Private Ryan. They're making a dumb summer blockbuster. But let's get just give me five minutes of character development, you know, besides, oh, it's been, it's been 10 minutes. Now Perseus has to have a fight with the elder Greek soldier, you know, to prove that he's, oh, he's using his god powers. Yeah, pretty much the only sort of character development is through these kind of weak conflicts that he has with other people. And then through those, they develop mutual respect pretty cliche in, in an action movie. Closing thoughts is that it was directed by Louis Leterrier. I probably just butchered his name. Same guy that directed The Incredible Hulk with Edward Norton. You know, say what you will about The Incredible Hulk, much better film than this. I don't know what happened to the guy in between, so avoid it. If it's in your instant watch queue and you're desperately bored, put it on for five minutes, and once you get sick of it and get sick of the wooden sand people, you're going to turn it off, and ultimately this movie's going to be forgotten in six months, and you still have the original. But ironically, it's the number one Blu-ray on Amazon.com this week. It doesn't probably because a lot of people skipped it in the theaters. But again, it's not a movie you should go out looking for. If it just happens to be something to watch, maybe check it out. But overall, you know, not the greatest. If movie. you're gonna check it out, do yourself a favor and rent the original because at least it's entertaining. At least it's fun. 
fallout from the 2010 San Diego comic book convention. I have been a comic book fan literally for about 20 years. I've been collecting forever and I've been to Comic Con and it's a pretty amazing experience if you're a geek. I mean, honestly, the hall by the time all those sweaty nerds are packed into it smells like the inside of a turd, but it's a fantastic pop culture convention. It was a pretty strong convention this year, I feel, because, I mean, let's be honest, last couple years, Hollywood has kind of co-opted the idea of the Comic-Con, and you get a lot of people showing up that aren't really invested in the comic book culture, they're just there to kind of stargaze. But this year, Marvel Studios, they came out swinging, and they had quite a few large announcements regarding Marvel Studios, which has been just a money factory the last few years. Primarily, and the one I'm most excited about is the entire cast of 2012's The Avengers showing up on stage. Everybody was there. Chris Helmsworth, the guy's gonna play Thor, he showed up on stage. Chris Evans, the guy that's playing Captain America, was there. They announced Mark Ruffalo is going to replace Edward Norton as Bruce Banner in The Incredible Hulk. Scarlett Johansson was up there. She's going to be the Black Widow. Robert Downey Jr. Samuel L. Jackson. Sam Jackson! As Nick Fury was there. And Jeremy Renner, who's going to be playing Hawkeye, the uh, resident squire, the resident archer of the group, was there. But, it, you know, it's a cool moment because there's all these actors that are playing these characters had taken the stage and there it was there are the Avengers and really this is a huge geek moment because if you'd ask somebody three or four years ago if this would ever happen I guarantee you just get resounding no's a chorus of no's Marvel has done something really smart with their movies by building on each other in order to build up to the Avengers movie that's coming out a few years from now. Um, not only that, is the movies that they're releasing are at least of a certain quality to where none of them have been so bad that they've killed the momentum building up to the Avengers. Some people yeah. would say that Iron Man 2 killed that momentum. You know, yeah, Iron Man 2. The, the original Iron Man, obviously, like a lot of people know who have seen it, it was a really, really good movie. It caught a lot of people by surprise, which is funny because if Iron Man 2 killed the momentum, the one that really created the momentum was the first Iron Man movie. Yeah, exactly. Well, that was the first movie in this kind of arch of films that are creating a Marvel film universe, you know, where all these films are intertwined. And if anybody says that Iron Man is Iron Man 2 was a terrible movie, they're wrong. Was it as good as the first one? Probably not. But was it entertaining? Yes. Did it get in everything that we needed it to do? Yes. You know, it, we have War Machine now. It introduced War Machine. It introduced the new It introduced costume. War Machine poorly. <laughs> it, it, yeah, that was kind of bungled. I know. It's like, hey, you're having a party. I'm going to go put this armor on and fight you, Tony. And I know they kind of explained that out that Tony Stark had a plan. But... Well, well, up until the part where War Machine comes involved with the party, that's a funny scene. When Tony Stark's drunk and he's dancing around the Iron Man suit and he's shooting things. That I was enjoying <laughs> it. But then when Don Cheadle shows up, who, by the way, in my opinion, is, uh, Don Cheadle's a good actor. Poorly cast for that role, though. I did not like him in the role he was playing. He, he, well, didn't, he just didn't... The problem with that is that Randy Rhodes, that character, is a military character. He's like a Green Beret, Special Forces, whatever. I'm not that familiar with the character. You need to have somebody that's believably tough. And I do think Terrence Howard brought a bit of toughness to the role. Don Cheadle was in Boogie Nights as Buck, the black porn star who was looking for a look. He's a great actor. I love Don Cheadle. He was a terrible Randy Rhodes. He brought no toughness to the role. There yeah, had to that, be some, that was one of my biggest disappointments. There had to be some. I mean, for God's sake, put LL Cool J in the armor. <laughs> I don't you know? Because then we could have... Jackson. That would be both Nick Fury and War Machine. Oh my God, that'd be so great. But you can definitely knock Iron Man 2 for some things. You can't say it was not an entertaining summer action film. As far as Iron Man 2 goes, it's leading into Thor and Captain America next summer, which is building up to the Avengers. And in Comic-Con this past week, or is, is Comic-Con for a whole week or is it just a week? Comic-Con is uh, Thursday through Sunday, but typically Sunday is a real slow day because everybody's kind of wrapping up their boots. Okay. 
But basically, uh, Comic-Con was used to build up for Thor and Captain America coming out next year. And there's a lot of hype, and it seems to be a lot of positive hype that's coming up for these movies. And, you know, I'm excited to see them both next summer. I, I was excited for both of them. Like I said, I'm a big comic book nerd. I've been reading comics for 20 years. For the con, I think people were excited for Captain America, but not as excited as they, I think they should be. And people were kind of questioning Thor. People thought that the picks that had been released up to that point weren't that exciting. They weren't that intriguing. And I think Marvel kind of knew they had to come in with guns blazing, especially on Thor, because I think Thor is definitely, it's not a sure thing. Thor is not a sure thing. It's a superhero film that is totally mixed up in the fantasy realm, but it's not like Lord of the Rings. It's mixed up with Norse mythology. And Thor kind of falls into that Iron Man category of not necessarily the first character you think of when you think of a Marvel film. So, you know, but I think they did a great job. They released a couple pretty intriguing picks just before Comic-Con. And then they had Chris Helms show up and the Thor panel seemed pretty strong. Kenneth Branagh was there and he waxed enthusiastic about the material. And, you know, I'm, I'm excited for what Kenneth Branagh brings to Thor because the dude does Shakespeare. One thing that I think might be a lot of people's uh, reservations regarding the Thor character is that the comic book character of Thor comes across, at least for me when I see it, it's kind of a cartoony quality to him. He's got his little head, he's got a big, you know, I mean, it's the Thor mythology, but when you put him in comic book context, it can be kind of silly, and I like the Thor character in comic books, but then you're going to have those reservations carried over to something where it's real, and it's being personified, and one of the things that brought me back to was the X-Men movies. One of the things that they avoided doing was using the cartoony looking X-Men costumes in those movies to make us seem more realistic because let's be honest if you saw Hugh Jackman in a yellow black and blue jumpsuit as Wolverine it'd be, that, that would overshadow any sort of content I, in the I, actual movie. I disagree with you as a comic book fan I think that'd be fucking awesome. Oh, yeah yeah but the I'd be the alone in the theater watching that movie but it'd be pretty great. <laughs> What I'm getting at, though, is that Thor and the stills that I've seen of it so far, I'm going to have to see more because so far it's like they've toned down his costume enough to make it somewhat believable. But he's still such an over-the-top concept that it's going to be really interesting to see how they actually get it over with just your mainstream person who's not a comic book fan. I, I agree 100% because, you know, Iron Man, it's a guy that builds a suit of armor. Or it's a guy that builds a suit. He uses technology to become a superhero. Captain America, it's like genetic manipulation. It's a super soldier serum. You know, the Hulk, the guy's experimenting on himself like those three characters are all based in science and there's some kind of basis in reality thor is a mystical character thor is the son of odin thor has to have his hammer because that's where he gets his power from and i do think that they're hitting on those same beats as far as the costume goes from the x-men they're gonna mute the costumes they're gonna take the more flamboyant comic booky aspects that work on the page out and they're gonna extrapolate from that the things that'll work on screen and one thing kenneth Branagh has really said what they all said on their panel at the comic-con was that this is a story the story of thor is story about a dysfunctional family because what you have is Odin is the all-father he's like the king of the gods in Asgard which is where the Norse gods lives and you've got his son Thor who is the god of thunder and but then Thor has a half-brother named Loki who is the god of mischief and Loki is Thor's nemesis and Loki is jealous that Odin loves Thor above him that Odin favors Thor and that someday Thor is going to be the god of Asgard and that's where the conflict comes in and it's really brother versus brother and you know Kenneth Branagh with his background in Shakespeare he's done Hamlet I think he is the proper director to really bring that conflict out and make it interesting and make it relatable to people in the world who's it, anthony hopkins playing odin yes as long as anthony hopkins bangs at least two or three dozen women like odin does in real norse mythology uh i'll, I'll be satisfied if that's the case if... i heard that halfway through the film it just devolves into an orgy <laughs> and all you see is sir anthony hopkins naked ass pumping in rhythm up and down 
And I want to see Thor smashing skulls left and right, just like in the Norse mythology. I heard reviews of the footage they showed at Comic-Con. They said it looked cool. They said Thor with his hammer swinging and deflecting bolts and stuff looked very cool. No, I'm really looking forward to this movie. Like, all joking aside, I think it's going to be a fun movie. I think that, you know, it's going to be one of those movies. It's pretty action-packed. Uh, I'm looking forward. What's the name of the actor who's playing him, Dick? Chris Helmsworth. I'm, I'm looking forward to see Kirk's Chris. Kirk's daddy from last summer's Star Trek. Yeah, there you go. The guy who played Kirk's dad from Star Trek last summer. Um, he's pretty He's bulked up for the role. Some some are speculating there may have been you know a little bit of HGH or steroid usage to get him in the role, but get I'm out of here. fine with get that. Get out of here. Because <laughs> Thor is a big buff. Look, I like my action stars huge, all right? I, wa- I would have had Sylvester Stallone play this part. He would have been older than Odin. <laughs> he should have been. <laughs> he should have. No, I think, you know, this is the most intriguing superhero film for me because it's not grounded in our world. You know, our world, I say it with uh, parentheses around it because it, it is a mystical film and I'm excited for it because I think this could be a completely different superhero film, much like Captain America, which we're going to move on to right now. Captain America, it was announced a couple months ago that Chris Evans, the guy that played the Human Torch in those two amazing Fantastic Four <laughs> films, is going to be playing Captain America and there was there were mixed, mixed feelings when people, when they announced that they had a cast Chris Evans. I, I was a fan. I think the guy's got it. You gotta understand that Captain America, Steve Rogers, was uh, the first super soldier created during World War II to fight the Nazis. And, you know, Chris Evans, dude's in great shape, handsome, blonde guy. Seems to me like a great bit of casting. The thing about Chris Evans for me is it goes back to when they cast Heath Ledger for the Joker in The Dark Knight. When that was announced, there was a lot of skepticism because basically what people viewed Heath Ledger as was one of two things. The guy who was in a bunch of teenage dramas and the guy from Brokeback Mountain. And all the comic book people and all the people who were fans of Jack Nicholson's Joker two decades ago looked at him and said there's no way this guy is going to be able to play a dark, crazy character because everyone knew they had taken that Batman series in a dark direction. What happened? He hit it out of the park. He won a freaking Oscar for it, even though it was, you know, after he passed away. He won an away, Oscar was... playing the Joker, a, a comic book character. Think about that. Jack Nicholson didn't do that. No, and and point being... And he deserved his Oscar. No, he did. He should have won it. I mean, the fact that he passed, it was posthumous. That, I mean, that's irrelevant. He was the best supporting actor that year, bar none. Anyone who saw the movie knows how I mean, great he, he was. He, he made the movie. He made that movie better. I think if you remove Heath Ledger from Batman Begins and plug any other actor in that role, it's not nearly as good a movie. It, it's still a very watchable movie without Heath Ledger, but Heath Ledger pushes it over the top. No, it was a good. It was a good story. I mean, they did a really good job making the movie. There's a little bit of fat they could have trimmed off the Dark Knight, but overall, good movie. You know, a movie, but Heath Ledger's performance. It, but what you're getting it's at what is you a, talk about. After but the you're saying over. that Chris Evans, the casting of Chris Evans, reminds you of the casting. What I'm saying is that there's skepticism, but I do see the same thing where I could see him turn his career in a completely different direction using this role. Remember him from the Fantastic Four movies where he's cast as the wisecracking, fun-loving Cuban Torch. I think you're going to see a completely different Chris Evans in this role. Well, if you go back and watch the film Sunshine, which was directed by Danny Boyle and I believe was released in uh, 2008, Chris Evans is in that film. He's, I believe, a mechanic on a starship. It's been a little while since I've seen it. But he is in that role and it's, it's a much more serious part for him and he does a really great job and at the end his character has to kind of sacrifice himself to make sure that the ship completes its mission and you actually care about this character and you know I do think that people remember him as Johnny Storm from the Fantastic Four and I will knock those movies till the cows come home but one thing they got right is the relationship between Ben Grimm and Johnny Storm. Well the one thing they got right was him. 
exactly. He was the only bright spot in those Fantastic Four movies. I mean, he nailed that character, and that's the way you got to keep in mind is he, as an actor, is not that goofy character. He made that character goofy because that's what they gave him. Well, and I think yeah. he's going to do the same thing Captain America. He's going to use his acting abilities to make the character come across correctly. I think Marvel did a great job casting his part, and it's such a tough part to cast because besides Superman and Batman, Captain America is probably like the third most iconic comic book character to cast. So, you know, I'm stoked for it. Also, something else it shares with Thor is that this is an interesting superhero movie because, as I understand it, it's a period superhero film that takes place during World War II. And could you imagine saving Private Ryan with superheroes? You know, the guy directing it, Joe Johnson, the same guy that did last year's Wolfman movie. And it was, you know, that, that was a troubled film. It sat in the can at Universal for about two years and suffered through multiple reshoots. So I don't think that's his fault. I'm encouraged because some of the things in the Wolfman worked really, really well. And also there were some parts in that movie that were pretty violent, pretty shocking, which, you know, if you're making a World War II superhero movie, it needs to be real. It, it needs to be real. To make it good. I mean, that's what they've been getting right with the Batman movies. Is they said, okay, let's screw the comic book thing. Let's make these movies real. If there was a real guy called the Joker who was crazy, who you knew nothing about, who acted in this way, how would he be in real life? And that's what they did with Heath Ledger. That's what they're going to do with Captain America. Hopefully that's what they do with Captain but America. But the trick with Captain America is his nemesis. And they've cast Hugo Weaving from The Matrix as the Red Skull, which is basically, he's not Captain America's counterpart, but he's a Nazi, not, not necessarily super soldier. He's just a Nazi with a red skull for a head. That's, I guess that's what it comes down to. But, you know, they cast Hugo Weaving, and that, that's Elrond from Lord of the Rings. That's the agent from The Matrix. He's V. He's, he's V, you know? So I'm very encouraged by that casting as well. And the costume designs that I've seen so far are pretty encouraging. I am excited. For Captain America. I think I'm a little more excited for Captain America than I am for Thor. It's kind of a toss-up for me. I mean, I'm going to go see both, so I don't really... But I, I like the Cassie Hugo even, too, especially if you could see the Red Skull carrying over into the Avengers movie as well. And so I'm glad they got a good character actor who you will be able to rely on to portray a villain and do it well enough to where you can hopefully keep it interesting for multiple films. Hugo because... Weaving has a great track record in big films. I mean, you go back and watch The Matrix. Throughout the second two films, he was pretty much the only thing watchable in The Matrix. Yeah, I know. He, and he throughout Lord of the rings he was great as elrond you know so he i mean he can play both the hero and the villain but this time he just has to be fucking evil no exactly which he does well i mean you saw it in the matrix i mean that's what he was he was the bad guy he was the guy running the shit storm in the matrix and and he did it very very well and that that's encouraging i actually didn't know that until they just said that so it actually makes me a little more excited for captain america you know rumors unsubstantiated rumors around the campfires that the story revolves around the cosmic cube which is a celestial powered cube that um basically grants whoever holds it unbelievable power but, you know, who knows what the story's really about so far. Let's jump over to the enemy side, DC Comics. Boo. Boo. Uh, you, Actually, can't, you, you can't boo DC. Um, no, DC's the, uh, they got Superman. Well, they got Superman. <laughs> Actually, they got All-Star Superman, which is a great comic book series published about two years ago. And if you get a chance, you should really check it out. It kind of does away with some of the tiresome continuity issues that the modern Superman comics has. And just is a fun, easy read to take on Superman. But Ryan Reynolds, Deadpool himself. <laughs> the man who loves to destroy comic book movie franchises. <laughs> The destroyer of franchises is taking on Hal Jordan, the Green Lantern. Kill it before it even begins. Yep, put a stake <laughs> in its heart. Thanks, Ryan Reynolds. 
Nah, Booyah! Just, nah, or be a little melodramatic. I think that Wolverine movie had more problems than just Ryan Reynolds. Ryan Reynolds was not the main problem with no. Wolverine. I actually like Ryan Reynolds as an actor, and I think he's a pretty good choice to play Hal Jordan. I think the Green Lantern's a great pick for DC to kind of come out of the gates with if they're trying to build their own Marvel Studio type situation. Green Lantern kind of reminds me of Iron Man, except I think he's much better known than Iron Man, but he's definitely one of those kind of second-tier DC Comics superhero outside of the uh, big three of Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman. In the concept of the Green Lantern is really cool because basically it's a police force in space that, you know, takes care of sectors and, you know, the Green Lantern takes care of the Earth sector, which is, I think, sector 11482 or something. I just made that shit up. I don't know. But, yeah, I, nobody's seen anything from this film. We've only been shooting for a couple months. There was a picture released recently online of Ryan Reynolds' Green Lantern costume, and I was thoroughly unimpressed. He looked like he was ribbed for her pleasure. I'm not sold on it. it looked, it, I, I know they're trying to get away with the idea that the costume and the how, how similar is it to the actual comic book costume? Because I haven't seen the picture. They didn't have any full body shots. It looked like the general idea was close but it also looked like there was some uh like the costume itself was muscles like it was a living entity kind of like the batman suits and like no i wouldn't batman go that Forever. far i wouldn't go that far as to say the batman suit it looked like there were it was made up of individual ribbons and that it would kind of glow and emit energy you know i wasn't super stoked on that design but the pictures really didn't reveal a whole lot you know, Green Lantern, I'm not nearly as familiar with DC Comics as I am with the Marvel Comics. That being said, I'm excited for the Green Lantern. He's a visually, he's a very interesting character because whatever he can imagine, he can make with his Green Lantern ring. His power ring. Yes, his power ring. Green Lantern is a character that I have not followed much in comic books. I'm not as big of a comic book guy as Dave, but compared to your average person, I know probably much more about comic books. He is a fringe character who I am very well aware of, but I've read very, very little about. I know what his powers are. I know how. Well, I, I think to your average person, he's a fringe character. But to a hardcore comic book fan like myself, a comic book guy, he's a little bit more. When I think of comic book movies I like to see made, Green Lantern is not one of the movies that I think of, oh, this would excite me. But we'll see what happens. Ryan Reynolds is an actor that I've liked him in some of his roles. As we were just making fun of, he was pretty much awful in that Wolverine movie. But that whole movie Who was, was a train wreck. <laughs> well, that, that movie is a movie that was so bad that I was laughing at it the whole way through. I thought that movie was funny. He's actually really funny. What's the, what's the, the movie with Anna Faris? Waiting. Not waiting. Oh, where oh, he's fat. Oh, where no. He's, where he's fat. That movie's Best actually, Friends, right? Yeah, best Friends? Yeah, whatever. Yeah, oh, it's about yeah, him being yeah. Best friend. Just Friends. Just, just friends. friends. Just Friends. That movie's really funny. You want to else really, Chris Klein is really funny in that movie. That's, as, that's as the, the thing about Ryan Reynolds, though. That's the thing. It's like sometimes he will hit it out of the park, and then sometimes he will make Blade Trinity. That being said, it's another movie. I'll go catch it. I'm sure Dave's going to take me out to Green Lantern when we when it comes out. I'm actually going to wear my Green Lantern jammies. He's going to wear his power ring that he made in his bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> it was bestowed upon me by the gods of Oa. <laughs> by the gods of Cheerio. By the Green Lantern Corps. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, uh, we're not as excited for this film as we are for the Marvel films next summer. Hopefully, you know, DC's got a big task ahead of them because Marvel's definitely be featuring their characters more prominently due to these films they've made over the last couple of years that have been pretty good. Yeah, really, if you uh, you get rid of those Batman movies, which have done pretty well, and they obviously hit it out of the park when they restarted that series, uh, DC is, you know, what have we got from DC? We have Catwoman. Yeah, we we got, have uh, Superman. A which, very bland uh, Superman movie. Yeah, and... 
when you take those in consideration in comparison to what Marvel's been doing over the last decade, it's pretty one-sided. Marvel's been winning that, you know, that battle between the two, you know, major comic book companies. So they definitely have some catching up to do. And it'll be interesting to see with all the momentum Marvel has, everything they have coming out, whether or not Green Lantern will at least be able to keep up with everything else that's going on. Honestly, my prediction for next summer is that Green Lantern is a modest hit. People go see it. I think it'll be a totally serviceable movie, but I think it's going to get lost in the shuffle between Thor and especially Captain America. But DC, where is your great Superman movie? Like, where is the Superman movie that's going to define this character for our generation? You know, Richard Donner made one that defined it for our parents. And you have the strongest, the most recognizable stable of characters this side of Disney. So, you know, the ball is definitely in DC's court and they've got to do something with it. I mean, where's our great Wonder Woman movie? Uh... It's, it's been, they've been trying to develop it for years. Joss Whedon, the guy that they announced this week at Comic-Con that's going to direct the Avengers film, the guy that did Buffy and Angel, and he actually wrote probably the best X-Men arc in comic books in the last 15 years. And he's directing the Avengers movie for about four years. He was attached to Wonder Woman, to do Wonder Woman. So DC apparently just let him go. Superman is the, in terms of comic book characters, he's the one that transcends comic books more than any other individual character. And the fact that they haven't been able to parlay that into anything since the original Superman movie shows that there's a serious problem. That's a, there's a serious issue. Because if they could get the right team on that, then it could be huge if they did it right well, and they put some well, original thought into it and did cast him against Lex Luthor for the 20th time. Well, that's that's the biggest problem is that Superman doesn't have Batman or Spider-Man's rogue gallery, but he does have some strong villains that they could use. Apparently, Chris Nolan's brother has actually been charged with uh, coming up with a story and developing a new Superman film. The problem with that is that Warner Brothers owns the rights to, uh, I believe Warner Brothers owns the rights to Superman. And if they don't make a Superman film in the next few years, the rights will revert back to the uh, estates of uh, Joe Schuster and uh, I believe Joe si Jack, Jack Schuster and Joe Simon. I believe the character that the creator of Superman. So, and then the offspring, the descendants of those two individuals will be the ones that will be calling the shots as far as the film. To wrap up our segment on Comic-Con, you know, this year was a really strong show. They had a lot of stuff to reveal, and, you know, from the Avengers, Captain America, Thor, Green Lantern, there's a lot of stuff to look forward to over the next year. Hopefully all these things can live up to the hype that Comic-Con is the thing that kind of starts the hype machine for all these different things that have been coming out for the last few years. They had the Optimus Prime truck one year. They always are the ones releasing the first shots of characters, so... The funny thing about Comic-Con and like us just speaking about this episode is that we've gone on much longer than we intended to, and there are things we left out. We didn't even talk about John Favreau's next film, Cowboys and Aliens. It's transcended comics. It's more of a cultural thing. You know, but that's a whole pop culture. That's a whole conversation on its own, though, because the show is still called the San Diego Comic Book Convention. You but know? it's not all folks. It's been kind of co-opted by Hollywood, and that's, you know... The show itself, the San Diego Comic-Con, I was last there in 2007. No, I believe 2006. And that was the first year that all four days sold out. And it had been, that was like the 35th anniversary of Comic-Con. So, but since then, all four days have sold out. And because typically Sunday was the day, it was the slow day. It was the day that all the vendors were wrapping up. That was the day they didn't sell out. Now all the days are selling out. And... You know, as a comic book fan and a comic book homer, it's kind of, it's sad for me to see it get away from comic books, but it's also great to see the Comic-Con get that kind of exposure. Personally, I could do without the anime manga nerds, but that's just me, you know, but it, if you haven't been to Comic-Con, you should probably go for at least one day. From experience, it is fucking tedious. You are tired by the time you leave, you are ready to go home and get away from all those people that... <laughs> Are a little bit out there. It, look, when I went to Comic-Con, you see the people that you only see in cartoons. Those people exist, and they're at Comic-Con. 
My homework assignment for this week was to watch as much as I could of the first season of the AMC television show Mad Men. Basically, if you don't know, Mad Men is a show about an ad agency in Manhattan, and it follows the lives of a group of guys, and the show is a period piece that takes place in the 60s. Um, what it does a really good job of is putting into perspective the culture there and a lot of the relationship between men and women, uh, namely a lot of the chauvinism that went on back then. I have only watched six episodes of it. Dave, Dave has seen the entire series up to this point and it just began the fourth season. I'm gonna kick over to Dave, let him give his thoughts on what he thinks. I love Mad Men. I think Mad Men is a great show. I think Aaron hit the nail on the head. The show is really about the dynamic of men and women in the 60s. And if when you really get down to it, it's about Don and Betty Draper and their relationship. The protagonist of the series is Don Draper. Don is smoking and drinking and fucking his way through the 60s, and if it moves, he will try and have sex with it, as long as it's a girl. It's an amazing period piece because you really don't realize it, but this was barely 50 years ago when men were smoking, chain smoking in the office, sipping cocktails in the office, and basically women were relegated to the role of secretary. And AMC and the show itself has struck this balance perfectly showing it. It, it never feels forced. It never feels silly or put on. It feels authentic. And all these characters, and the show is so well cast and so well performed, especially Joe Hamm as Don Draper. You know, Don Draper is kind of a piece of crap, but there's something about him you don't hate him. You That's don't the funny hate him. thing. He's he's a character that you should hate, but they he's acted in a way and they've developed him and wrote him in a way that allows you to actually like for him and cheer for him. Exactly. He's totally competent in his job. In fact, he is uncannily good at his job. But he runs around on his wife constantly. He's incapable of being faithful to his beautiful wife and their two kids and you should you should hate don but and that's a testament to joe ham the man that portrays don draper and his performance is that he humanizes don so that you're not just rooting against don for him to fail you want don to be faithful you're rooting for him to be a good guy in a lot of ways um and i've only seen the first six episodes and what davis touched on pretty much sums up the character of don draper he's almost like he's kind of a fantasy he's successful women love him and other people want to be him um essentially he's awesome powers but <laughs> but i th no, i think i think you're right i think you're very that's very true but that's just professional though when you get home his home life is not everything it's cracked up to be it's not what it should be and i don't want to give too much away because aaron hasn't seen the uh, further adventures of don draper one thing we're gonna do is we're gonna keep coming back to Mad Men as i catch up in the series with dave and so eventually we'll uh, you know build on that perspective and kind of continue on with our discussion but i mean just to continue on with madman the rest of the cast the character roger sterling don's boss and his confidant is just you know it's once it's all it almost is like you're looking at don draper 20 years later with less inhibition because roger sterling is a guy that you know and as the series goes on does not fail to blow up his life any chance he gets you know and this was a generation this was the post-world war ii generation this these were the guys that definitely did not adhere to what the beatniks and what the beat generation I actually just watched preaching. the episode in the first season where Don goes out to the beatnik club with his mistress and the, her beatnik friend, and he kind of puts him in his place. The funny thing is, that, that beatnik character, it's really in the way they portray it in this episode. It's really over the top. He's as beatnicky as a beatnik gets. 
that is one of the only instances in the show where I was like, oh, this is kind of ridiculous. But, but I mean, but the thing is, there were people like that though. Oh, it, there it absolutely was, were. It was it was cliche and all those things. But even though Don, it's again like one of those instances where being a character that you should hate but you love, you cheer for him to put the beatnik in the place. It was just this schmarmy, snooty beatnik, and Don totally self righteous beatnik. They're at some beatnik club that Don doesn't want to go to, but he gets drugged to because of his connection with his mistress, and she can kind of you know pull those strings to get him to do things that maybe he doesn't want to do. Well, the funny thing is that Don throughout the series, and I guess I am going to give this away, is that Don is capable of developing relate a personal relationship with women that are not his wife. And this is an instant where he has developed a personal relationship with somebody that he's not married to, a woman that he's not married to. Well, essentially, that's his character. I mean, yeah. that's what he does, is that he, he, is in, he has his he's wife. Incapable, he has, he's oh. incapable of intimacy with the one person he should be most intimate with. No, exactly. And it, it, it's just kind of a... Uh, it's funny because it's one of the big commentaries that happens to the show is that of just a relationship between a man and a woman and a lot of the things they bring up are still things that you see to this day a lot of the issues with being with one person for a period of time and the question of marriage you know is it the individual that makes the marriage last is it individual people or is it just that question of is marriage when it comes down to it just unnatural to be with one person for that long is there a reason why don draper's running around on his wife is that is that human nature or is it just him as a character and that's that's an that one of the things that's drawn into the show at this point. But I think one thing you just touched on is Don's wife, something we haven't talked about is January Jones as Betty Draper. You know, she is the early 60s housewife and she is, you know, she doesn't have a job because Don does so well and she, it affords her a lot of leisure time and she doesn't take care of her kids. They have a nanny that takes care of her kids and you see her running around the house just drinking and smoking in the middle of the day and it's funny because it's almost a study in isolation. You know, Betty Draper is surrounded by her children who she doesn't take care of and her housekeeper who she doesn't really talk to very much and that's the commentary it's it takes place in the early 60s so it's coming out of that 50s household where that's what women did they stayed at home they maintained the house and it's just before the women's rights movement took off and so it's right in that period of time where women are going into that and you see some of that in some of the female characters you see how they are starting to take advantage of a situation they've learned to be able to manipulate the men in order to get what they want they're as well. starting to starting to get their own as women and come out of the men's shadow but it doesn't seem like betty draper is necessarily going to take that step no that's what i'm saying you got the the characters who aren't doing that and you have the female characters the redhead lady i don't remember christina hendrick yeah christina joan. well that's her act joan she's that strong female character who seems to know what's going on at least up to this point and is taking full advantage of her situation and she's very aware of what she's doing in order to get the things she wants in life so it's interesting to see that almost transitional period of time between the 50s housewife and the women's rights movement and how the two are kind of coming together there and i will i will say that um this show definitely plays with those ideas of women's lib and the man's role and it definitely takes some dark turns i mean it touches on homosexuality in the early 60s and for me i guess one of the biggest draws about the shows i'm excited to see where it goes as the decade progresses as they get more into the hippie free love movement because a man with don draper's sensibilities his ideas about what american life is are going to be challenged as they get to the late 60s and that's the part i'm most excited for but you know this show is for me it's unbelievable top to bottom the set design the attention to details i i want to wear the suits that don draper wears because the guy is a stone cold pimp it's a fantastic show and I, you know, we could go on and on about it i i could go on and on about it i don't want to because Aaron hasn't got that far into the series yet, but knowing how I feel about the show, I'm really curious to see what his reaction is as it goes on. 
we'll we'll come back to the subject every you know maybe every episode maybe every other episode depending on how quickly i can get through it but just to sum it up so far you know it's I am not a big TV guy. It takes me a while to get into stuff. The show is piquing my interest. I wouldn't say I am full on involved in it, but I have a feeling television takes a while. It'll take about a season probably to get me in it. And then once they get those characters developed and they really get the story rolling, I have a feeling I'm going to be hooked. But so far, I have liked what I've seen. I am attracted by Don's character. Another character, aside from Don, that I'm actually fascinated by is the character of Pete Campbell. He's like an executive accountant at the uh, advertising firm. He's and a junior executive, which he's, he works beneath Don. Yeah, he, he's he's right below Don, and he is the character that you hate in the show. He's a young guy. He's trying to get his, but I'm going to be interested to see where this character goes because the way they've developed him up to this point, you know, I hate him. But, you know, I'm drawn to him as well just to see what he does because he does a lot of underhanded things to try to get work his way up in the uh, office pool. I had the same feelings about Pete Campbell when I met him because he kind of comes off as kind of a slimy, scummy, self-serving sack. And I think that is very true to his character throughout the arc of the series. Much like Don Draper's character, they humanize him. And I, I never find myself rooting for Pete Campbell the way I root for Don. But you definitely, it makes you kind of uncomfortable when something's happened to Pete. Well, they do a good job of, like you said, they, they humanize the characters. And one thing about Pete Campbell, one thing I can say specifically is there's the episode where Don wants to fire him. Because Pete Campbell does business outside. He goes underneath Don to get a job done. Basically, he wants Don's job. And when they fire him, then the human aspect kicks in. Because he has all these other things going on in his personal life that they've already shown you. And you realize how it's going to affect this guy on a deep, personal level. And while you don't like the guy if it was a person you do in your life you wouldn't like the guy you still feel for him and that's a testament to the writing of the show oh yeah they actually develop each individual character they each have their own personality smaller characters like sal the guy that's in charge of their art department you know it's strongly insinuated that he may be gay and to watch the uh, sal's arc throughout the series is fascinating I mean, the humanizing of Peggy, the office girl, to watch her character grow and develop as the show goes on is fascinating. There's the three background characters, kind of Pete Campbell's little buddies that their names escape me right now, but all of them, they're all given something to do. They're not just wallpaper. It's just a phenomenal show from top to bottom. I really can't say anything else about it other than that, and I'm excited to see what happens in season four, what's in store in season four, and I'm excited to see what Aaron thinks about the show as he progresses through it. So that does it for Apocalypse Now, a journey into the heart of darkness. Before we go, we just want to talk about what's going on next week. I'm giving Aaron the homework assignment to review all 12 issues of All-Star Superman, the 2008 DC Comics series written by Grant Morrison and illustrated by uh, Frank Whiteley. On top of that, the homework assignment Dave has for next week is to listen to the new Avenged Sevenfold album, Nightmare. Mother of God. And, <laughs> and we're also going to be discussing the 11th annual gathering of the juggalos in chicago illinois you know what i think about when i think about juggalos awesome family <laughs> so that does it for a pod clips now my name's dave and i'm aaron and we just want y'all to have a good week thanks for listening